to the Quarantine Players Podcast. We are a group of writers, directors, and actors who had our productions canceled due to the pandemic. Each week, we'll read a new play and discuss it with a playwright, just like Shakespeare. We aspire to create new work during a global pandemic. Welcome to the Quarantine Players. Tonight we present Deep Analysis, a lecture and a play and a performance all in one. I hope you enjoy it. Join us after the show for a talk back with the actors and the writers. Thank you. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, welcome. <clears throat> Good evening, and welcome to Divinalysis. This is an informal lecture in which we deconstruct the diva. Would like to thank our very kind sponsors, all of you here, and Shinsex and Sa SadStories.com. Uh, mother knows best because mother knows everything. Whatever else is true of her familial identity or her prevailing social status, mother's origins are those of cultural mythology and her history is the history of human consciousness. Now, Ovid tells us Mother Earth, impregnated by the blood of the Iron Age's wars, produced what was more or less modern humanity, contemptuous, arrogant, violent, but also articulate, cunning, and presumably distracted by dreams of morality. Thus, mother is the provenance of our own multifariousness in which repose the traumas of birth, the bucolic tableau of youth, the codes of religious meditation, the acuity for logical inquiry, the rituals of heroism, the intricacies of desire, and fear of the principal descendant in this line and the principal heiress to its legacy, because she is both an exemplification and transmutation of these energies, is the archetypal daughter of God, the diva. <laughs> to the extent that we can agree upon the terms and style of the diva construct, we should note that if our conception traces an arc, from remote antiquity to the present, we may find the differences among our divas as instructive as similarities. So, if I offer as examples of diva masochism, both Cleopatra and Lewis Carroll's Alice, it is with a view towards demonstrating that Cleopatra may have been less controlling than we imagine, and Alice, less a victim than she seems. Still, because the diva is complex and fiercely autonomous, she will resist the constraints and boundary conditions her definition requires. The fundamental characteristics of the diva construct these. One, sexual dualism, by which we mean the erotic and maternal singularly contained She's both lover and mother. Two, theatricality, by which we mean the tropism towards ritual display, the ability to move simultaneously just through one's physical and metaphoric space. Three, tragic inertia, by which we mean the dramatic validation of tragic ends thus her ability to crash and burn into ashes and then make a triumphant return by 8 p.m. at the palace wearing a dress that her designer so believed in he market tested it for her during an after-hours party in the basement vault at the Berlin Philharmonic. In the Aristotelian sense, as a consequence of the first two characteristics, this will help us distinguish two divaism 
from mere eccentricity or lurid perversity, that is, from drama queenism. The polymorphic mechanism of the diva is best understood as the confluence of two cultural vectors converging on one sexual, psychosexual environment, that of the rhythms of history and the stylisms of modernity upon the cognitive capacities of the individual, which is not to say that much of the diva's persona does not rise up to her viscera or is not improvisational, but Christ's mother would not seem convincing as one of our proto-mythic divas if we believe the immaculate conception was not evidence of her divinity, but just a way of controlling the perspective humiliation of Lamash class reading of the diva. A deconstructed vision of secular divinity will illuminate the equally paradoxical relationship between the diva of popular culture and the diva of myth. Now, clearly, the quantitative identity of the former emanates from the qualitative identity of the latter, but it is only from textual and filmic explorations that we can see the succession from Helen of Troy to Helen Hayes, or from Catherine the Great to Catherine Hepburn, or to suggest a more difficult relationship from Coco Chanel to Imogene Coca. Our model permits these relationships to exist. And indeed, if we accept them as corollaries to yet other coextensive textual connections, we can assert that just as the divas of the present reinvent the historic tradition, the divas of the past are with us now as ghosts from behind the ontological mirror. Come along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway, the Hickory and Valley Woo, the lullaby of Broadway, the rumble of the subway trains, the rattle of the taxi, the daffodils who entertain at Angelo's and Maxie's. Good night, baby. Sleep tight. Milkman's on his way. Do, do, do. Good night, baby. Sleep tight. Let's call it a day. Hey! Hello, boys and girls. Class is in session. Actually, class is gonna take a fucking back seat tonight. <laughs> and if you haven't heard my honeys, I do my best fucking in back seats. If it weren't for back seats, I would have failed my driver's test. <laughs> there I go, shooting off my vulgar mouth so soon. I really didn't mean it. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Sorry to be so Preachy, so anti-establishment. <laughs> anyway, I was thrilled when they asked me to come out here and give you a few pointers on what a diva is. I said, Miss M, you have so much erudition to flaunt. Camille Paglia isn't the only loudmouth in academia. So what becomes a diva most? You don't need all those big fancy words. You don't need a PhD or even an IUD. It's not brain surgery, my dear. It's rather simple. There are three qualities to make a diva. One, have gorgeous gams and wonderful tits. Two, wear outrageous revealing drag and most importantly live by this motto. Three, fuck them if they can't take a joke. Please rise for the national anthem. He was a famous trumpet man from out Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowin' reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. Thank you, thank you. I think you're all lubed up and ready. Live theater is like sex. You do your thing, I do my thing, and we create magic. You're all so hot. <laughs> Come back to my dressing room after the show. You'll really see what makes this body old broad tick. But I think it's time for the jokes 
of marvelous Miss Sophie Tucker, a filthy, vulgar old broad. <clears throat> I was in the woods last night with my boyfriend, Ernie, and he said to me, Soph, he always called me Soph, he said to me, Soph, these woods sure are dark. I sure wish I had a flashlight. And I said to him, so do I, Ernie. You have been munching grass for the last 10 minutes. I will never forget it. I will never forget it. <laughs> I was in bed last night with my boyfriend, Ernie, and he said to me, Soph, you got no tits in a tight box. And I said to him, Ernie, get off my back. I will never forget it. I will never forget it. Thank you so much, <laughs> filthy old broad. <laughs> anyway, my loves, I'm now going to pull a little trick out of my tit kit bag and leave you with a little dirge. A dirge for the two of you out there in La La Land who do not know is a sad refrain, a lament, a ballad. You know, when I first heard this song, I thought it was about gardening tending a garden. You know, you plant a seed, you water it, and it grows. But now that I've had vast amounts of experience under my divine belt, I realize it's about love. Oh, you know, you recognize. Some say love, it is a river that drowns the tender reed. Some say love, it is a razor that leaves your soul to bleed. Some say love, it is a hunger and need. I say love, it is a flower, and you, it's only seed. Thank you. Any questions so far? Okay, so the diva is the axis around which turn the twin forces of concealment and representation. Inasmuch as we can never say to what degree these are synchronous motions, we are in the untenable but not unenviable position of witnessing in the diva the perpetual, do we dare say eternal, division of a completely disseminated text, a phantom user's guide to the hermetic procedures of divaism. We are seeing something remarkable unfold as if it were inevitable. It has no ostensible formal properties, but we will see that it has a rigorous grammar of propriety. Put simply, the diva state of mind, if we can permit that ambiguous image, is encoded in her behavior, or more to the point, her behavioral patterns. As we can clearly see, some divaistic behavior is scarcely determinant or predictable. But using Thomas Aquinas's exemplary criteria for beauty, we may discern how the diva, perhaps quite without knowing, affirms three of the virtues of the aesthetical universe. St. Thomas's program reads thus, one, proptio, two, integritas, three, claritas, essentially proportion, integrity, and clarity. The diva is the nexus, the center of her geometric environment, and from that, her psychological boundaries, whatever they are, are self-generative space for the diva is occupied from the inside out, spilling out in design of pathogenesis from beneath her dress. 
This is what we mean when we say a diva fills the room. Whatever her proportions are, they are always perfect. The gestural language of the diva most clearly illustrates her command of the external world. The given materials make the integrity of her form once again an overheated academic term meaning for the diva, the entire universe is a prop. The lexicon of her gestural grammar includes costumes, props, uh, lighting, dogs, cars, carriages, uh, escorts, proteges, flying carpets, discreet lovers, overstuffed handbags, garish hats, legal summons, perfumes, a coterie of photojournalists, cyclops, whips, hypodermic needles, indiscreet lovers, shoes, sex manuals, priests in translucent front, vials of pig's milk, hymnals of axioms, irregular verbs on doilies, elixirs of acrimony, plastic pants, a chorus of eunuchs, protein rhapsody, letters, angel's diaries, amniotic fluid, power demons, the atlas ellipticalis, the magna carta, the Rosetta Stone, and the shit list. Now, through the magic of Zoom, we give you a fly-on-the-wall view of a diva making a comeback. Okay, Liza, we've been doing this all day long. You think you can get it right this time? Now, in the first scene of The Temptus, Miranda, that's your character, by the way, appeals to her father's charitable instincts in order to promote her own sexual agenda, however naive. Okay, action. And by your art, dearest father, you have put the wild waters in this roar, then Allie, yeah! It feels good to be back. So, how are you? Me too, I feel terrific. I've got a new hip, a new face, yes! You know, this reminds me of my most recent tour of the Galapagos Islands. I can really breathe when I'm south of the border. You know what I mean, darling. Ladies and gentlemen, Mama always taught me to keep your nose clean and a good comeback lined up, and you can never go wrong. Anyway, I- Liza, Liza. Oh, did I, something, something wrong, darling. No, try to keep this sense of the character's innocence. Use that experience in the islands to connect with your character's isolation, alone with the old and boring. <laughs> I know, darling. I've played Orange County. I even played Cerritos Auto Square. And you don't know how desperate it is trying to sing cabaret while trying to push off a Toyota hatchback to some deadbeat in the front row. <laughs> well, you must find a way to evolve beyond that conception. Honey, I'm living proof of the validity of evolution. It's a long road from Mama's womb to a Halston Chiffon, yeah! Right. Well, maybe you could approach it from the other end. Your own experience is decidedly unlike Miranda's in that you become famous without ever really leaving the island of Manhattan. Oh, darling, I've logged frequent flyer miles without even leaving my apartment. Can we get a funky little bass rhythm going from my entrance? And you're gonna need some tails and tap shoes. Do you want me to help you make a return to the stage or not? Shakespeare requires a degree of respect. Darling, I respect the son of a bitch. I'm only saying that some variation on the text may be illuminating for contemporary audiences. After all, the boys on the front row expect Liza with a Z, not Lisa with an S. You can't just rewrite a classic by the Bard of Stratford on Avon. I hate Avon. Lorna used to peddle that cheap shit in the 80s, and it gave me a yeast infection. But listen, we need some variations. 
What variations, for example? <laughs> Darling, I was thinking of a nice, white, hot spotlight, a sequenced Halston, 25 bare-chested men coming out of the orchestra pit, some Bob Fosse choreography, grams and grams of cocaine. I mean, darling, it's gonna be my best work since Cabaret. Wait a minute. Liza, maybe you should approach this from the perspective of your real age compared to the age of this character. Now, how old exactly are you? Just say the jury is still out on that one. Now, I just round off to the nearest physical year. Well, in many ways, the Temptus is about memory. Memory can be a very painful thing. Tell me about it. When I sat down to write my autobiography, which is loosely based on my life, I couldn't remember anything that happened from New Year's Eve 1972 until the world premiere of Rent-A-Cop. So I started from the end, goddammit, and worked back. How many chapters will it have? Twelve. I think in groups of 12, old habits are like old friends. Actually, 12-step was never the answer for me. I always required a baker's dozen. And what happens when you get to chapter 11? Well, you just send the bills from Bloomingdale's to your attorney and get your name in Liz Smith's column. Well, as long as we're not rehearsing. May I ask you about those S's? Yes. Is that an affectation or just a speech impediment? Both. Darling, my gifts are plentiful. It's very distracting. Maybe so, but oral sex with me is better than a Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Santa Claus included. Well, at this point, you're looking like a very large inflatomate. Inflate-a-mate? Yes. Uh, if the mate inflates and there's no one there to fuck it. Well, you wanted to host the parade last year, right? Oh, hell yes. But they were afraid I would forget my lines. Ridiculous! Whatever else is true of me, and there are many things, I never forget my lines. I, I, I have some in my purse, actually. You, um, you want some? No. No? Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> anyway, I told them to use my talent as collateral in the deal. <laughs> so what happened? They wanted Judy Garden's autograph. Don't you think it's somehow inappropriate for an artist of your importance to engage in all these capricious excesses? Are you saying, darling, that my excesses are irresponsible? Well, let me put it this way. If a gram of cocaine... You got some? ...equaled a university credit, why? you'd have an endowed chair in metaphysics from John Hopkins University. Darling, if bad jokes were interior design, we could redecorate Long Island with two minutes of your best shit. Cultural anthropologists will be at a real loss to name only seven wonders of the world because they won't be able to decide which is more impressive the pyramids at Giza, the Great Wall of China, or Liza Minnelli's substance abuse. Abuse? Maybe, but my exploits are invariable as research. I could reconstruct the entire periodic table from my medicine cabinet. What have you done for science besides donate your tired to MIT for experiments in microbiology. Liza Mae Minnelli, this is your bottom girl and you just hit it. Ha! You're a fine one to talk to me about bottoms. And what does, your, your, and what does any of your life mean anyway? I don't know, but I'm sure there's a glossary at the end. Freak.
Tramp. Trollop. Cocksucker. Toll hole. Mama's boy. Is this the real Liza or just an act? Oh, I, I don't know. Is this your real personality or one you borrowed from that, uh, uh the Teresa Caputo? What a shame to live as twice as long as your mother and accomplish only half as much. Oh, Mama! Daddy! Peter! Bobby! Houston! Oh, I feel so desperate. Oh, God, grant me the serenity to... I, I can't even remember the serenity prayer. Shit. Oh, Liza, I adore you. Do you really, darling? Yes. Well, I adore being adored. Darling, you want a drink? Yes. We have seen that the diva is the kind of point of departure for the discourse of grammar. Any language we use to speak of the diva will of course show its limitation in applications. The principal difference between the diva and her environment in which she occurs has mainly to do with the correlations that we ourselves create. In part, the problem with imaginative experience is of course that it is imaginary and the diva is quite literally real. So if we speak of mother as a providential force behind reality, or if we speak of mother as a kind of limiting condition, then we are really talking about is the way the diva exhausts her resources and becomes her own worst enemy. The problem is that we intuitively connect to the idea that glamour is camp. Consider the origins of Western glamour. In ancient high culture in Egypt, say 2500 BC, there we see the elaborate reorganization of aesthetics with respect to the body. The reorganization of the criteria for desirability, for beauty. In the late 20th century, fashion evocations of asymmetry in form constitute conditions of Susan Sontag was all wrong in her notes on camp. Essentially, camp exposes glamour from within. In general terms, the methodology of camp is the transcription of the archetypal representation onto conventional object texts, which should not be confused with kitsch, which is a displacement of the archetypal with the merely incongruous or bizarre. Consider the primary camp crossover artist, Maria Callas, as a public figure. Callish was a projection of ironic large-scale ambitions onto a lesser talent. Hers was not a perfect voice or a perfect life. Kiss for luck and we're on our way. We've only just begun. Before the rising sun, we fly. So many roads to choose. We'll start on walking and we learn to We've just begun. That was something, I tell you. What in the hell did, are you doing here, Karen? And what did you do with Maria Callas? I intercepted her in the green room, japped laughter, and hit her someplace she will never be found. This is the wrong lecture. You're next week with family, food, and psychosis. Oh, I know, but I was in the cafeteria drinking a tab. Yeah, I fell off the wagon. And I heard you deconstructing those wonderful divas, and I thought I should be included. Karen, you weren't invited for thematic reasons. 
What do you mean by that? Well, sweetheart, you had a marvelous singing voice, but a diva? I think not. Come on. Well, I was simply thinking that I fit the role of the diva based upon the following criteria. A, a sexual dualism. B, theatricality in my personal favorite. Tragic inertia. Girl, you have the sexuality of Celine Dion. You have no stage persona and- But I have enough tragic inertia for nine divas. But you didn't have the body for one. Well, that's the price paid for being a revolutionary. Revolutionary? How are you a revolutionary? Well, I'm finally down to my target bicentennial weight, a whopping 76 pounds. Yippee. You are a grotesque caricature of the modern female psyche. Oh, I'm no Gloria Steinem or nothing, but I'm a model of womanhood. Even if that preposterous idea were true, I still would not accept you as a diva. Can't you grade on a can't you grade on a curve? You have no curves upon which to make an argument. Can I try for some extra credit after class? Karen, I can accept you as a creature programmed to self-destruct, but you did it with zero sense of style. That's not all true. You're ignoring my vast body of work, and that I had some sensational gingham pantsuits. My battle with anorexia was dark, turbulent, and psychotic, secluded, desperate and painful. That may be true, but you still died in the closet. Look, Professor, give me a chance. I'm planning the greatest of comebacks. I'm gonna drop my dick brother. I already cut off all of my luscious locks to look like Olivia Newton-John. I'm gonna put out an eight track remix of all my hits. They long to be on top of you. Rainy days and PMS. Goodbye to lunch. Top of the toilet. Jambalaya. Rewind for recipe. Hurting each other. The Leather Daddy remix. Please, Mr. Postman, ring twice. And my personal favorite, there's a kind of douche. There would have been no stopping me. I'm gonna give you a taste tonight. Hit it, boys. But my body keeps changing my mind, keeps changing my heart when we're dancing. My body says love you tonight to drive me out of my mind when we're dancing. Well, I know it wouldn't be right to say, take me home tonight. But when we keep dancing. Karen. Your comeback was doomed before you began. That shit was retro when it was in. I had the voice of an angel. Bad girl, metaphorically. <laughs> now, where were we? Ah, the question you're all asking which I'm hoping to finally answer. Which came first, the diva or the dress? Now, clearly, this is a question that commands not only the legitimacy and substance of our primary explorations, but also gets into larger issues of causality. I would not suggest that even in this universe of discourse, one event or one quality will follow another simply because it looks that way in history. A linear scale of events cannot accurately describe a single event. Each unseen event in between contains a highly recursive inventory of modern permutations. So too with the diva. Now, 
I'm not talking here of reinventing history or understanding the interpolation of history as some kind of coalescence. The diva is iconoclastic because she repudiates the notion that everyone is created equal. Let's consider the image of Theseus to be our model of adventure. The way we move through the mysteries of life, the problem here is the labyrinth of dreams. Theseus didn't solve the ultimate riddle of the labyrinth without his Ariadne, his diva, who gave him the magic thread. Now, Carol Burnett, is an interesting example of a diva that has been an extraordinary success without being a diva in the conventional sense. She is essentially an anti-diva, the anti-hero. She has no elements of our construct. On the other hand, no one would deny that she uh, um, uh, Performance by her would be anything less than a mythic projection. However, there's many truths about the appearance of the diva. Where is that flaky bitch? Hmm? Hello? Pardon me? She's ready? Grace! Oh, tonight we have been visited by divas like Dickens' ghosts for the present, past, and future. Unlike Theseus, we find our way out of the labyrinth. We made love you. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. You made me want you. And all the time you knew it. I guess you always knew it. You made me happy sometimes. You made me glad. Well, there were times, dear, you made me feel so bad. Clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. Ding, ding, ding. As we started for Huntington Dell, chug, chug, chug went the motor, bump, bump, bump went the brakes, bump, bump, bump went my heartstrings as we glided toward Huntington. Oh, oh. hell, what do I breathe in this goddamn thing? My goodness, it's the longest number ever written. I think I aged 10 years during that number. Where am I? Divinalysis an informal lecture on the diva. Oh dear, my fiance producer director has booked me on the lecture circuit. Ho oh, hum. We're so happy to have you here, Miss Garland. Oh, just call me Judy, darling. All right, Judy. No, I like Miss Garland better. It sounds more dignified, doesn't it? W whatever you prefer. We're here to make you happy and as comfortable as possible. A million dollars would make me quite comfortable. That's out of our pay range, but I have so many questions to ask you about being a diva. All right, shoot. Uh, would you like to have a seat? Thank you. First of all, I, I must apologize for being late. I, I was on my way here and, and the tornado hit. Tornado? Yes, the storm called Judy Garland. It, it was going fine, and then all hell broke loose. I couldn't figure out what to sing, what to wear, and, and my wig wouldn't fit. We're pleased that you made it. I, I, I hope they stay with me. They have before. You're the reason I'm still alive. How does that feel? What? Well, feels so strange, darling. I stand backstage, and a nobody, and, and then I enter, and everyone loves me. I'm curious. What's your view of fame? Oh, my view of fame? 
well, they, and I, I don't know who they are, they say I'm a legend, but no one wants to fuck me. I, I only think of myself as a mother, a, a wife of several times, and, and just an ordinary girl who happens to croon a few songs. But you're also an Oscar-winning actress who sings a few songs. Oh, yeah. I got an Oscar this big. It was a special child's Oscar. And besides, what's wrong with an Oscar this big? Well, dear, I'm sure you know, when you want one this big, and you get one this big, there's something rotten in the state of Hollywood. Point taken. You worked at MGM in the grand days of Hollywood, the golden age. That must have been very, very exciting. More like the tarnished age. God, those were horrible times. I hated that place. Oh, tell us why, Judy. Well, that son of a bitch, L.B. Mayer, was just a horrible, rotten bastard who worked poor Mickey Rooney and I to death. I remember when I first walked on the lot, he called me into his office and I sat across from him and he leaned across the desk with his beady old snake eyes and hissed at me. You're my little hunchback, but I want you nice and trim like Lana Turner. So take these. And he pushed a big silver tray of pills across the desk. And I said, Mr. Mayor, I can't take those. They'll turn me into a, a, a big drug fiend. And he blew the roof off the building. You listen here, girl. I own you now. You are metro property. You're going to take these goddamn pills or I'll tear up your contract and you'll be little Francis Gum singing with your sisters back in vaudeville. So I, I, I took the pills and, and look what happened. Judy, I have something for you. What? Oh, give me those pills. Do you really think that these controlled substances are necessary? Absolutely. Substances have been controlling me for centuries. <sighs> now I really feel like Judy Garland. Say, you're kind of handsome. Will you marry me? Ah, <laughs> uh, Judy, I'm gay. Oh, that never stopped me before. Why do you think we gay men love you? Oh, I wish I knew. They've always have adored me. You know, they call each other friends of Dorothy. I think they can relate to me, my pain, my sense of drama, and they love good music, dancing, and costumes. I mean something to them. Uh, they are the underdogs, and so am I. They belong to me, and I belong to them. We complete each other. So, you consider yourself a victim? I'm afraid I do. I'm flawed. I don't mean to be, but I am. They understand my traumas, misfortunes that help pull me out, and they help pull me out of it. When I sing, I want to love those boys who have no love. I want to hold them, to heal them, to bring something good from the bad, and, and they know that. Hmm. Judy, what was your favorite film that you made? Oh, what was your favorite film? Uh, Summerstock. Oh, no. I looked dreadful in that picture. I looked like a fat, ugly gas station attendant. That was a horrendous picture. A Star is Born. That was my masterpiece. Oh. Did you like the Barbara Streisand version? Oh, no, that film was a wreck. That perm of hers, those nails, those dreadful pantsuits. Not that I haven't ever worn a bad pantsuit. Those loud rock numbers were just asking too much. She won an Oscar for hers. You listen here, you lousy faggot son of a bitch. That bitch, Bray Craith Kelly, stole my Oscar from me. She slept with the entire voting committee, and I couldn't because I was pregnant with Joe. That Oscar was mine. Do you hear me? Uh, I agree. I'm sorry. You should have won it, Judy. Calm down. 
forgive me, please? You made me quite cross, Buster. I'm really sorry, Judy. I have one final question for you. Good, then we can go out. Yes. Who is Judy Garland? Well, I don't know. It's bizarre, the, the whole phenomenon. I, I can't explain it. I, I go out and sing, dance, and make people happy, and then I go home alone, and it's quiet. Sound like being deaf, and, and I walk into the living room, and she's there. It's Francis. Francis Gum. And she's sitting on the couch as plain as you're sitting here now. And, and she holds a drink out to me and she says, Judy, it's time to talk. <laughs> and I can't stay there. I, I, I run around the house trying to shake her uh, to forget her. I, I turn up all the house lights and, and the radio and the television and she won't leave me alone. And I call people on the phone. Uh, Judy? I'm afraid we're out of time. Would you sing for us one more time? All right. I guess I can sing. I know how to do that much. Wheel her out, boys, and, and let her sing. Someday will come along the man I love. And he'll be big and strong, the man I love. And when he comes my way, I'll do my best to make him Judy, they played the overture two times. No, he'll look at me and smile. No, I can't. Judy, get your fat, drunk ass out there and sing! Well, that was just wonderful. Thank you guys so much. It's been lovely spending time with all of you. Um, everybody, feel free to turn on your... Um, Turn on your mics and your video so you can give a little applause and then let's uh, have the actors introduce themselves and where they're from. AJ, I can't get mine to work again. I don't know what's going on. Honey, you're on already. You're live. Oh, you're hot. You're I can't live. See Everybody can see you. <laughs> I can't see me. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Oh, you diva. <laughs> I know. Okay, I'm good. Starting with Tori. Hello, everybody. My name is Tori Clay. I'm an actress currently based in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm next in the show. So uh, I'm Kate Kylie. Uh, I use uh, she, her pronouns, and I am uh, based in New York City. Hi, everybody. This is Eugene Ebner. I play Darling and I was actually in New York City for two years, and we just relocated to Denver, Colorado. I love you. Hi, everyone. My name is Sarah Jones, and I live in Bar Harbor, Maine, and I played Liza Minnelli. Hi, everyone. I'm the other Sarah. I'm Sarah Barron. I played Karen Carpenter. And I am residing in New York City. Oof. <laughs> uh, hi everyone, I'm Judy Lewis, and I play Judy Garland, and I am located in Arlington, Virginia. Um, and Scott, our director. Hi everyone, I am Scott Olson. Uh, I had the unimaginable um, dream of, of being able to uh, direct this amazing show with these amazing actors. I want to kiss you all so much and thank you so much and to Steven and to Scott uh, Wilkerson for allowing me to direct it. And AJ, you, my dear, are an amazing, amazing producer. Thank you. Thank you. Steven, um, do you want to introduce yourself and then Scott? Hello, my name is Steven Foster and I am the writer of the analysis, the co-writer. 
and I am living in Los Angeles, Hollywood. Swimming pools, movie stars. Homeland. <laughs> <laughs> Scott? Hi, everyone. My name is Scott Wilkerson. I'm uh, one of the co-writers. Uh, I'm in Columbus, Georgia, right outside of uh, Atlanta. Hot Atlanta. I just want to, I, I want to thank everyone, uh, all these extraordinary performers and our terrific director, a terrific producer, and of course, my, my old friend and uh, co-conspirator, Stephen Foster. You know, I, I love you, Stephen. <laughs> I love you too, Scott. Wonderful job, everyone. And I'm AJ Campbell, and I'm the and I'm the creative director of the Quarantine Players, and we do this every week, so please stay tuned. Does anybody from the audience have any questions for cast members? Applause, thank yous, you know, cash, whatever. We're not picky. That was very entertaining. <laughs> uh, thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry. Scott, where's your tiara? Oh, hi, Gail. How are you, girl? Gail's with us tonight. It's so exciting. <laughs> Gail was our Bet Davis. Yes, she oh, was. amazing. And Gail, Gail and I have been friends for a very long time, and I've had the most utmost privilege of directing her in shows and being in shows with her. I love her, and thank you so much for attending tonight. I appreciate that. Hey, no problem. Good to see you again, Gail. Yes, it's slow, but... Coming back, coming back. <laughs> we missed you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Gail. Thank you. <laughs> I get to have a colonoscopy Friday. Yay! 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 Thursday, got a cleanse. Fantastic thing after another. Woo! Oh, test tomorrow. Yay! That's a great Rosh Hashanah gift, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> my goodness okay does anybody else from the audience want to have <laughs> less up the butt stuff does anybody from the audience have any any questions for the cast crew writers that was fun thank you <laughs> i just have to say it, it's been such a delight to, to meet all these actresses that i've not met before and to do this online and know we're spread out all over the place but it has just been you guys have raised the bar like every night i'm like oh my god i can't do this you know um it, it it's it, it, this has just been a fantastic project i feel the same way I, I just really appreciate all of you and i'm blown away especially by the impersonators of, of the diva i mean that's that's hard to do and all of you were tremendous and tori to have such a big part and to have to express the way you did, I, I say bravo. So Absolutely. thanks for including me. Uh, Steven, Scott, part. do you want to give a little background on the script, the uh, genesis of this? Oh, and hello. Steven, you have you have a man behind you. He's got a man. <laughs> this is where I do my casting. I bet. And how did I get this job? In true Hollywood style, darling. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you a question. That's why I've, I've been watching the whole thing from off, from off camera over here. Uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, for the four of you that are playing the four divas, um, really great and, and, and not just uh, um, surface great, but, but uh, internally great renderings of these four people. I just wonder if any of you uh, have ever played those actresses before. Just once before in Stephen's other show, um, Legends and Bridge. So he, he writes Judy Garland well, and I've been very privileged to be able to do that. So, uh, but my mother looked like Judy Garland, like this is my mother. So <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I lived her life for a while when I was growing up. Um, but, but yeah, no, this is kind of the first time. Great. No, I mean, I, I got thrown into this like two hours before the first rehearsal. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, I know Karen Carpenter and I love her voice and everything, but no, this is definitely not 
not anything I've done before. Actually, my only like professional roles as impersonators have been as men. So. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thank men you. Play men's better than some of us men play men. So there you go. <laughs> it's been a journey. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've never played, I've never um, done any Bette Midler roles, but uh, I think, but I've always, I've always admired her. And then, um, time that I met Stephen, uh, which is like got to be about a year ago now, uh, something like that. He was like, you look like a young Bette Midler, like Bette Midler Jr. So like, that's always been, um, I, I took that as like, as I believe he meant it as the highest compliment. I took it, you know, so like, this has been a great uh, opportunity to, um, a great excuse to just binge her shows and stuff. And I, I adore her. And it's been really, I wish, I wish we could do it more. Yeah, I feel like we're just getting started. I wish right. we could do it more. As, as someone who like went to college with Kate, like we have always referred to her as Bette Midler. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we really. have a, a scene from Hocus Pocus in class. What about the other Sarah? Sarah, have you ever done Liza before? Never in anything. I mean, just for fun sometimes for like friends or quickly, maybe in a cabaret very quickly, but never, never really getting into it much. Okay. I, I made my husband come into the room when you were talking it's because I'm just like, you have got to hear this. And he's like, oh my God, <laughs> that sounds just like her. Really? Yeah. Nailed it. It's so good. Well, all four of you were just, that's why I asked the question. I'm, I mean, I'm amazed because you have all, wow, gotten up to speed just so quickly. It's just really great. Thank you. It means a lot to us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I am. Yeah. Jump in there, Kate. Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, just uh, yeah, I just, I really have had so much fun and, and watching all the other actresses, you're all an actor, uh, we're all, you're, everyone's fabulous and, uh, and AJ, you're amazing and, and our writers, yeah. like, and all the like last minute additions to the script that were so funny and like totally worked and like our beautiful, our beautiful, fabulous director, Scott, like just, it's been really a joy to work with everyone from afar. Like I said, I, w I wish we could do this more. Like, I feel like we're just getting started, but I'm very grateful for this uh, experience and I've had so much fun. Cheers. One of the benefits to working with playwrights who, who have pulses. And uh, we have a very strong commitment to the, um, the we're spiritually inclined playwright among us all. Um, I love both Shakespeare and all of them, but living play playwrights deserve to have their plays performed. And we have a very deep commitment to that. And um, it's one of the things that hopefully uh, people will like and come to see more of we bring it to you 50 times a year. It sounds fantastic. I see the new norm. Well, it could be. There's no reason to, uh, there's plenty of room for classics. Let's do, let's do new stuff. Let's do wild stuff. Let's do stuff that, no, that we're not even sure people want to see. Let's do crazy things. I Let's agree. do things that we're not sure that, that is not going to please an, an, an older audience. Let's do things that kids are going to like. Let's put things on that are wild and strange and full of, 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 of bizarre things. I mean, let's go nuts. Yeah. Nothing mm -hmm. to lose. Might as well. Might as well. What else we got to do? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I really think, as long as Zoom holds out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on a meeting with my boss today because I had to get him up to speed on something. And it was about five o'clock. I said, well, okay, so I got to go because I got to go play Judy Garland tonight. <laughs> really? Casual. I'm like, yeah, it's my other life. You know, that's the fun part. But totally supportive of this, so. I would like to hear about the genesis of the play, especially, I, I just love the way you inserted Karen Carpenter in the middle of all those other divas. <laughs> you know, can you just sort of walk through that a little bit? Well, uh, I, I will start. Um, the. The play originated while Scott Wilkerson and I were uh, working at Tower Records. Um, this is going to date us. Uh, we were working in the classical music section. And by the way, I don't know a sonata from a, a concerto. Um, <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> and um, while we were putting records away, um, Scott would ask me questions. We'd become friends. And he'd just ask me questions. And I would answer in the voice of like Karen Carpenter, Elaine Stritch, 
uh, Bet uh, Midler or Liza Minnelli. And what, what happened is we, we didn't really write anything formal um, until we, uh, we, we, we have birthdays on this, sort of on the same time. Um, and we had a, a party at our house and we decided to have a performance party. And so we put together Bette Midler, um, Judy Garland, and Liza Minnelli, and, and Scott put together the professor monologues. So what happened is we kind of, he did his thing and he wrote the Liza and Darling scene. And then I did the Bette Midler sort of semi-concert and through some weird fortuitous synchronicity, I met this guy at Circuit City and he said, I have a theater. And I said, I have a show. And we didn't have a show. Only thing we had were these little I have things. an idea. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a show. And so we sort of cobbled them together with whatever we could. And, and I was obsessed with Karen Carpenter. And I always liked to dress like her. And, and we just, and I don't know whose idea it was. And we just put her in and we said, well, well she's not a diva. And I said, well, she's got to be in there because I love her so much. We've got to have Karen in there. And so it was either Scott's idea or my idea. I don't know. And we just said she's going to bust in on the lecture. So Scott, your turn. I mean, I'm so glad you did that because otherwise I wouldn't have been here. So. <laughs> I, I thought that was really clever. I, I you know, it was, it, it just, it, it changed the flow right away and having this argument about whether she belonged or not, that was really clever. So. Thank you. Scott. Well, I don't have more to add except to say that uh, the, the, the show was uh, itself uh, an in improvisational act of friendship and and love in the middle of this vast metropolis Los Angeles we created our own world made up of these extraordinary divas and we were both reading a lot of uh, cultural history and listening to operas and musicals and uh, all of that is what I know is very surprising to learn uh, and these, this, this world got larger and larger and, and it, it had to arrive as a show. And Stephen's quite right uh, about the way in which uh, the, 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 ca the causation was entirely reversed. Uh, we, we had theater and the space and the advertisements before we really had a script. And so it occurred to us at some point that we should probably write the show. And <laughs> so we, we did. <laughs> and it, 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 our roles in the, in the show turned out to be weirdly prophetic, wouldn't you say, Stephen? Uh, in, in, the, in the way that our lives uh, went after that. Well, yeah, because you became a professor and I became um, an, a diva, an actor. So, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like we wrote these, it's like we wrote these roles for ourselves. And I always say that Scott, uh, I was a reviewer when we wrote this. I was writing, was going to plays and writing reviews of other people's material and CDs and stuff. And, um, and it's funny because um, I became, I always say Scott tricked me back into acting because I didn't think I would ever act again. I was just a, a writer, a very serious writer. And um, through this, I became an actor. So Scott and I, sort of grew into our roles. I became a, a diva and he became a professor. So it was, it, it was very prophetic and, and far reaching now. I remember walking down Santa Monica Boulevard and uh, stumbling across two different magazines in which you had pieces about a play or a film or something like that. And thinking that this was entirely terrific, but also that you needed to be up on that stage again. So I, you know, everything that, uh, that I think I understood about the theater at that moment, Stephen Foster taught it to me. Mm. And so that's it. Aww. Well, that's a really great place to leave it. Um, thank you all very much. Um, and uh, very excited. We will have this uh,
broadcast up on Friday night at seven o'clock uh, and our podcast will be out at just about the same time. Please share widely and tune in next week as we have a brand new play and a brand new playwright. So um, thank you guys so much and have a deep day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information about Quarantine Players, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quarantine players. As Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar, if we do meet again, why, we shall smile. If not, why then, this party was well made.